Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. So today's episode is a bit different. With me today are two law students at UVA, Matt DeSandro and Elizabeth Putfark, and they've been doing some research on the issue of wood pellets. With the energy crisis in Europe, the need to transition away from fossil fuels, alternatives like biofuels have gotten a lot of attention, and wood pellets are a prime example of a biofuel. Indeed, most of the climate models in which we are able to actually keep temperature change below one and a half or two degrees Celsius, they have an important place for what are called BECs. And what BECs are, uh, that stands for bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So the idea here is that you grow biofuel uh, in the process that sucks carbon out of the atmosphere, then you burn the biofuel for energy, then you capture, and then you store the carbon so that the whole operation is carbon negative. And again, uh, BECs are really important components of the plan, uh, such as it is, to keep temperature change at manageable levels. So Matt and Elizabeth both wrote great papers for my, my environmental law class last semester. And incidentally, they both focused on wood pellets. So we thought it might be fun to do a deeper dive on that issue for an episode of Free Range. Okay, so other than finding a paper topic, Matt, what got you interested in wood pellets in the first place? Yeah, so hi, I'm Matt. And what got me interested in wood pellets is what I was reading about European countries. And on, on one hand, right now, because of the war in Ukraine, um, they have a lot of pressure to adopt alternative energy sources. Um, and at the same time, they also want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And wood pellets seem to, to fit the bill. Um, so they've become a very hot topic right now. And that's what's got me interested. Yeah, cool. And uh, what about you, Elizabeth? Yeah, I came to law school really to study environmental law and um you know, so naturally kind of have been watching to see what issues pop up. But also my dad is in the logging industry. And so I kind of grew up understanding this this tension between my dad who loves trees and loves forests and, you know, some of my best memories are camping as a kid. But also he supported our family by, you know, being involved in an industry that cuts them down. Um, and of course, the more that I've gotten involved in conservation, the more that tension has uh, tended to implode between us a little bit. Uh, we've gone around over sustainable yield and clear cutting and pine plantations and things like that, you know, where he brings his 40 years of experience in the industry to my couple of hours of scholarship reading and the courage of my convictions. Um, and he's usually pretty patient. But um, it was interesting because earlier this year, when I started hearing about wood pellets, I, I brought it to my dad, of course, because, you know, you have to poke the bear. And uh, he was weirdly quiet. He was kind of like, you know, I don't know those guys. That's uh, that's something else. And I thought, that's strange. So something must be going on here. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, Matt, what were your what were your priors going into this issue? Like broadly, uh, what were your initial impressions? What did you expect to find? So my initial understanding was, you know, a generally positive view of wood pellets. Um, I know that wood pellets are a technology that's been around for a while, but also hold a lot of promise for the future um, because wood pellets are known to be carbon neutral. 
Um, so my understanding was that wood pellets were a great way to transition away from coal and toward a future that was more environmentally friendly. Um, and uh, yeah, how about you, Elizabeth? Yeah, I'd heard it more from the the other side. So I'd heard uh, reports of this increasing the pressure on southern forests, on clear cutting, on um, sort of losing a lot of trees in the southeast. So that was my understanding of what a big part of the controversy was, was less about the energy and more about what's happening uh, to trees on the ground. Hmm. Well, good. You started with different priors. That's always a, a pr productive place. Um, but what's what's the answer? Who's right? Uh, is this the dream of the future that's going to save us from climate change or be part of the solution at least? Or is it a disaster that's going to destroy our forests? Well, guess what? It's complicated. Yeah. A lot of it depends on who you ask. So to start, what is a wood pellet? We asked Daniel Reinemann from Bioenergy Europe, which is a nonprofit based in Brussels, and it advocates for biomass energy. Biomass is any plant-based material that can be used for energy. And, you know, this can be wood, whether it's wood chips or waste wood or wood pellets, uh, but it could also be something like uh, agricultural biomass, such as sunflower husks or olive stones or any other kind of, of residues. But wood pellets are a specific type of biomass. Wood from trees is broken apart, heated to reduce moisture, converted into a fine powder, then compressed to form a solid, dense, and short pellet. It looks like dog food. And that's because wood pellet making technology comes directly from animal feed pellet lines, which have just been adapted to woody materials. Well, the wood pellets uh, are quite interesting because they actually represent the, the closest thing that the biomass market has to uh, a commodity. Uh, they're going to be more or less uniform in, in shape, density, um, properties, uh, energy content. Um, and uh, it's going to be quite different from uh, wood chips, for example, which have a much lower density. You have a bigger differentiation in the, the size and the ash content. The controversy over wood pellets isn't so much about making them than it is about burning them. So what effect does burning wood pellets have, and how does this compare to burning, say, fossil fuels? We asked Dr. Alan Knight, who is the Group Director of Sustainability at Drax Group, one of the biggest companies in the woody biomass industry. The fundamental difference between coal and fossil fuels and biomass is the fact that coal and fossil fuel are fossils, um, i.e. both coal and other forms of fossil fuels are the result of millions of years, tens of millions of years of biological matter, which has settled on the ground for the sake of coal, you know, in the sea for the sake of oil, uh, and um, then been buried through geological processes. And then over millions of years, been turned fossilized, basically, and turned into, into coal. And so the, a lump of coal may represent hundreds of years of organic growth, which has been compressed uh, and, and locked out of the atmosphere for obviously millions and millions of years. Um, but the biomass we use was in the sky a few years ago when that tree started growing. So trees spend their whole lives soaking up carbon out of the atmosphere. And when a tree is burned, that carbon is released. But unlike coal, that's not the end of the story. One of the fundamental principles of good forest management 
is that you you allow the forest to grow back to make more timber or you even in many cases you actually replant a tree where necessary and that tree starts growing so we plug into a natural carbon cycle of the trees growing and taking the co2 out of the sky so there's always a sort of a net balance of co2 in the sky fossil fuel basically takes carbon which has been stored underground for for millions of years and took millions of years of carbon to accumulate puts them into the sky overnight with no means to take that co2 out of the sky so fossil carbon is linear biomass is circular the process of trees soaking up co2 in the atmosphere is called carbon sequestration if trees are able to sequester CO2 at a faster rate than CO2 is released into the atmosphere, that's called the carbon dividend. The size of a carbon dividend can be further increased through bioenergy with carbon capture or BECS. So this is where you stick with your biomass plant, a bioenergy plant, but you add CCS, carbon capture and storage. That then allows that plant to become a carbon removal machine. And if you look at what came out of COP27 in Egypt, but it's been there since COP26, IPCC have been talking about this, is that, you know, we need gigatons of carbon removals if we're going to have any chance of reaching two degrees, let alone 1.5 degrees by 2050. There's a very clear scientific consensus that part of the world's mitigation plan for climate change is to remove carbon from the sky. What BEX does, which is bioenergy, so biomass creating energy, but then the CCS stores that CO2 underground, it does that at perhaps the most cost-effective way of doing carbon removals. Drax has plans to add BEX to one of its power stations as early as 2024, but the vast majority of bioenergy plants don't have BEX yet. The technology is super expensive, and it's difficult to scale. Without BEX, the size of the carbon dividend really turns on what type of wood is being used. Large diameter trees, old growth forests, hardwoods, these trees store a lot of carbon. And once that carbon's released, it takes a really long time to store again. But according to Dr. Knight, that kind of wood isn't even on the table. The biomass we focus on at Drax is the, the woody residues and the materials from the timber industry. So if you imagine if you go into a forest um, which is harvested for timber or pulp, um, there will be a lot of thinnings, there'll be a lot of disease logs and small logs which are too small or too twisted and bent, which can be used in um, a big professional large-scale sawmill. And of course those sawmills themselves produce a lot of sawdust. And so we can use those twisted logs, we can use the the undergrowth and the thinnings and the branches and the tree chops, and we can also use the sawdust. Or, as Daniel puts it, you don't use a T-bone steak to make hamburgers or dog food. Yeah, so uh, any type of wood can be used uh, in theory, uh, but when we're talking about how this is actually working in practice, I mean, it's just uh, the, the low-quality wood and the residues uh, from uh, other wood processing sectors or, or from uh, forestry itself. Um, and, and this is because, you know, whether you're using high-quality wood or low-quality wood, it's not going to have any impact on the, the bioenergy. It's still going to be able to, to capture the, the same uh, energy content. 
So according to Daniel, the industry has every incentive to stick to low-quality residues because it just makes business sense. Bioenergy producers are always going to be focusing on the, the lowest cost material. Uh, and, you know, considering the, the prices that exist for, uh, you know, high quality saw log material, which is going to be at least three or four times uh, higher than what we're going to get for, for forest residues, uh, it doesn't make sense for any of this material to, to be going into bioenergy. Uh, now, this isn't something that's really regulated by, by laws. Uh, this is something that's more just kind of done on, on the market level. Proponents of current harvesting practices argue that this is an efficient use of otherwise unusable wood, providing additional revenue to forest owners and incentivizing good management of forests. Let's say I, I've got a small holding of land where I've got trees on them. Um, I will at some stage want to harvest those trees for timber and I will harvest them for timber and not for pellets because I get more money for the timber than I'd ever get for a pellet. But during the growing of that little forest estate, I will have to do thinnings to protect the health of my my trees. I might have to do I might have to remove some diseased wood. And and by us being present in that sector, we can provide a revenue stream to them for material which isn't of timber quality, both during the, the development of that forest, i.e. the thinning cycles, and ultimately when they choose to harvest that forest for timber we will take the tops and the bottoms of the tree uh, and the thinnings and and the other bits they don't want um, so they get more money from that operation and aside from environmental effects the biomass industry is also a significant source of employment and tax revenue particularly in the rural areas where mills get sited and trees get sourced because of the regions where the forests are it's not unusual for us to only be, um, you know, almost the only employer um, or one of a few employers in these regions. So we do bring jobs. We do bring income into those regions. What really makes wood pellets work are policies and subsidies that support them. Most importantly, biomasses are considered renewable energy by the European Union. This is all codified in what's called the Renewable Energy Directive, commonly referred to as the RED. RED's a set of sustainability criteria meant to get the EU on track to meet its decarbonization goals. And getting categorized as a renewable energy source in the RED means heavy industry subsidization. And that's how woody biomass is currently categorized. Between the EU's energy targets, RED subsidies, and increasing demand across the UK and Europe, it's not surprising that the use of energy from biomass, particularly wood pellets, has skyrocketed. In the case of Europe, uh, bioenergy is the, the biggest source of renewable energy in the EU today. Uh, based off of the, the numbers in, in 2019, bioenergy made up 57.4% uh, of uh, renewable energy, so uh, quite a, a significant share. And, uh, you know, we do expect, obviously, the, the share to, to decrease as other technologies become more and more mature. Uh, but bioenergy is going to continue playing a, a important role, um, particularly in the, the heating sector, uh, where there are a lot more limited options as to, to what can be done to, to go through and uh, decarbonize. Um, and in the, the heating sector in particular, uh, bioenergy makes up uh, 85% of uh, the renewable energy. Uh, so um, that's quite significant. Amendments to the RED have been proposed to change this landscape. But 
Industry argues that these changes aren't necessary. I would say uh, one of the things that we are following the most closely is um, the uh, provision that the, the European Parliament has added on uh, primary woody biomass, which would place some uh, additional restrictions on what kind of uh, uh, material is able to be used for, for bioenergy and how that's able to be supported. Now, the, the concerns that we have with regards to this are that um, when you're talking about primary woody biomass, it's just referring to where this material is or, uh, originating from. So it's uh, just concerned about whether it's a byproduct from the sawmill industry or pulp and paper, or if it's coming directly from the forest. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be any kind of indication of, um, the, of the quality of the material or uh, that is going to be any indication of what the, the end use of this material would be otherwise. And so the, the big concern that we have uh, as industry is that this material is going to be um, prevented from being used for, for bioenergy, even though it's not going to have any other kind of uh, material use because it's going to be too small, too crooked. It's going to be uh, infected by um, mold or uh, fungi, and that is going to be re rejected by other industries, uh, but that it, it still will be, uh, by this legislation, uh, restricted from being able to be used for energetic purposes. And, like we learned in Professor Livermore's class, imposing regulations doesn't come without costs. The language on, on primary woody biomass, which I was uh, talking about earlier, uh, I, I think is probably one of the, the most uh, important aspects because this isn't something that's tracked by, by companies or governments or even academia right now. Uh, so kind of adding this uh, definition and restriction uh, could potentially severely constrict the supply of uh, biomass for the sector. Uh, and that could, you know, potentially uh, reduce uh, a lot of the, the trade volumes happening between the, the U.S. and the EU. But the biomass industry doesn't just affect Europe. It also includes wood pellet manufacturers in the southeast United States. The southeast is very rich in timber and is called the U.S. wood basket. Even though timber has long been a major industry in the southeast, wood pellet production has dramatically increased in the region over the last decade. In the last five years alone, wood pellet exports from the southeast have gone up by 60%. We spoke with Professor Bob Apt, a man who has dedicated his life to studying forests in the southeast. The south is unique, right? It's 80% privately owned. So if I was any other place, Canada, the Pacific Northwest, uh, I'd be spending a lot of time figuring out what forest policy consequences were. But in the U.S. South, it's really a market-driven, largely unregulated story. So it's a it's a... A lot of policy and market questions end up depending on the market-driven dynamics in the South, which drives both the amount of timberland, how intensely it's managed. Professor Apt is a forest economist at North Carolina State University. And as an economist, Professor Apt tends to take a middle-of-the-line approach. That's sort of the way you look at every question. It's not a right versus wrong, but who wins and who loses and, uh, and what are the distributional consequences of that. So what are the distributional consequences of wood pellets? My initial sort of point of view from the modeling in that conversation was, um, uh, yes, they will in fact compete for uh, wood with other users. And from a market perspective, what that does is drive up prices. And in the South, unlike I'd say most any other place in the world, in the South, when you drive up prices from more demand, uh, the private landowners respond. So 
there's plenty of research that shows, shows that forest area in the South expands with higher prices. Um, and that's because when prices go up, those people who are managing forests for income uh, either manage more or plant more. And so um, that was one of my first insights from it was that, in fact, there will be competition wood from the pellet industry. Okay, so basically, the more people there are trying to cut trees down, the more trees there are going to be. This is pretty much exactly what my dad has always said. <laughs> so your dad's right then. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Professor Apt. The work I've done and others have done sort of suggests that the marginal impact of uh, the demand for pellets on pine pulpwood has had a rent effect. In other words, we can show that areas where pellet mills have moved in now have higher prices than areas where pellet mills did not move in. Those price increases and increasing returns to landowners would suggest, based on history, that there could be an increase in carbon stock. The landowners who own land for income respond both in terms of increasing the growth rate of trees, maybe by fertilization, um, and by expanding on marginal land, the forest base. Part of the increase in the southeast carbon stock is driven by alternative land uses becoming less profitable, while timber harvesting becomes more profitable. In the U.S. South, part of our ecosystem here, uh, and where most of our forests came from, is you know abandoned agland. But if we don't mow our yards, we'll end up with a forest. You know, you can see trees growing up through old houses all the time. So that's a sort of an ecological advantage of the situation itself. It's a very resilient and and turns into forest if you just stop bothering it. So, so that's one reason that the South is increasing is, you know, there's less land needed for ag. But remember, like we talked about earlier, all trees aren't created equal, not in terms of carbon sequestration anyway. Right. Whether you increase the forest carbon stock can largely depend on the type of wood that is in demand. It's easy for me to explain. If, if you take the part of the forest out that's slow growing, which is lowland hardwoods are much slower growing than pine plantations, for example, then actually there's a benefit. In other words, the, it, if you move harvest off of those slow growing lands, the inventory and carbon impacts are actually better because you're putting more of the, the um, demand against the resource that responds to it, which would be pine plantations in the South mostly. If it's for pine, it's a different story for hardwoods, but if you increase demand for pine, you can actually get a positive forest and carbon response. Now, there, of course, there's trade-offs in that too, which is if you are cutting down upland hardwoods to put in pine plantations, you may gain a sequestration advantage, but you may lose a carbon stock or a habitat or diversity advantage. So, you know, that's why I, I end up being able to work each side of the issue because there's, you know, the economics comes out um, with trade-offs, not a yes-no answer. Okay, well, that sounds pretty great. We get a transition off of coal to a fuel source that has a shorter life cycle than a fossil fuel. Um, way shorter cycle of fossil fuel transitioning from, I don't know, uh, tens of thousands or millions of years or something to, um, you know, a few hundred years. Uh, you know, we increased forest cover because people are growing trees uh, in order to make a profit. 
and we can trust the market to keep um, the really high quality trees that people are worried about out of the mill. So this sounds like a win-win-win. What could be the problem? Well, that's just one side of the story. Ah, well, I guess that's almost always the case on environmental issues. There's more than one perspective. Yeah, conservationists have been raising alarms about wood pellets pretty much since production started booming in the early 20-teens. One of the people we spoke with is Louise Guillot, a journalist at Politico who's been covering the controversy. The topic of bioenergy in the EU has been quite tense um, over the last years, um, mainly because um, you have on the one hand the industry that uh, promotes um, the potential of bioenergy as a substitute for fossil fuels, uh, which is becoming increasingly important in um, the energy transition that the EU is, is doing, while on the other hand you have environmental campaigners and also scientists warning that um, burning um, wood for energy also emits uh, CO2 and uh, sometimes more CO2 than uh, their fossil fuel equivalents is for us a quite um, debated issue. Turns out, sure, trees soak up carbon, but it takes time, like a long time. Burning wood, in fact, emits more CO2 per unit energy produced than fossil fuels. And obviously it's not carbon neutral energy because um, basically for the very simple fact that trees don't grow back as fast as you can burn them. So there's always going to be more CO2 in the atmosphere if you're burning wood for energy than if you weren't. That's Dr. Mary Booth, director of the Partnership for Policy Integrity's Science and Advocacy Work. She started her career at Utah State University, where she earned her PhD in the Rangelands Ecology Program. They have a great ecology program, but I also went to school with, with guys who wear big belt buckles. <laughs> Dr. Booth was part of a lawsuit challenging the EU's classification of woody biomass as a renewable energy source. The EU is supposed to update these classifications to reflect new science. And by the time the case was heard in 2019, scientists like Dr. Booth argued that the science had changed on woody biomass. The case lost on standing, meaning that the court never heard the plaintiff's arguments against classifying woody biomass as renewable but it helped put wood pellets on the map as a controversial fuel source in the climate community. Their basic point, which a lot of critics continue to raise, was that burning woody biomass causes an immediate spike in carbon. Wood is a low, has a, a lot of carbon and not very much energy in it compared to fossil fuels. And it's also wet fuel. So it's very inefficient fuel. So per unit energy generated, like per megawatt hour of electricity generated, burning wood emits um, like 50% more CO2 than coal and a couple hundred percent more CO2 than natural gas. And that's just a physical fact. Even when new trees get planted, that dividend can take decades or longer to realize, even if they're regrown at a faster rate than they are burned. And the scale is huge. According to one study, to offset emissions by Drax alone, we would need to plant and regrow 60 million trees. Another way to think about this is 
I always tell people like the bathtub model. So if you envision the level of CO2 in the air as the water level in a bath bathtub, and there's the, the, the water level depends on how fast the water's running in and how fast the water's running out the tap. So the tap and the drain. And, um, you know, if you've got, if you're burning trees, burning more carbon, burning more terrestrial carbon and pumping that into the, into the air, that's like, um, turning up the tap and the level of water in the bathtub is going to go up. Right. And if you don't do something to simultaneously drain water faster out, which would be trees taking carbon out of the atmosphere, then the water the water is going to level is going to rise and CO2 is going to accumulate in the atmosphere. And that's essentially what what's happening in reality, cutting and burning a tree over here will not make a tree anywhere else grow faster. And the climate community is pretty darn worried about near-term spikes in CO2. IPCC warns that carbon emissions need to be curbed by at least 43% by 2030 to avoid catastrophic climate change. The best time to have started reducing emissions was, you know, 50 years ago. The next best time is now, right? Matt and I both came across several studies that emphasize this point, that the key problem with the near-term spike is the timing. If we were talking about this 20 years ago, maybe it would be different. But now we're in what climate scholars call this critical period when the near term really matters. And that's why BECs aren't really a satisfactory solution either. We need to take carbon that's in the atmosphere now out of the atmosphere. And basically right now, the only way to do that um, that's really viable is with trees. We don't have technological solutions that exist and certainly not at scale. Okay. But then why does the red continue to classify wood pellets as a zero carbon energy source? Well, it has less to do with science and more to do with bookkeeping. The biomass burning um, and other kinds of harvesting, you know, of forests is counted as um, affecting the land sector's carbon uptake, basically. It's reported as more or less depending on how much harvesting is happening. And because that's already, that emission, that flux of carbon from the land sector has already been counted in the land sector, it's treated as zero emissions for the purposes of counting in the energy sector to avoid double counting. That convention of bookkeeping and counting the carbon in one part of the books was translated into kind of a assumption that bioenergy actually has zero emissions in the energy sector. Oh, so it's not that nothing is getting counted. It's just that the counting has already stopped when the wood actually burns. Exactly. Well, that seems odd. Yeah, even Professor Apt is not convinced. The CO2 that's emitted in the atmosphere is being put back in the atmosphere, but was at one time withdrawn. And now that's not a carbon neutral story, right? Because there's diesel logging equipment, there's diesel trucks hauling it, there's factories being built. So, you know, but from a simple stack perspective, what's going out of the stack is carbon um, that was once in the atmosphere. And so that's when you get into a question of well, how, how good is this? Well, it depends on how fast the trees grow. It depends on what would happen to the trees if you didn't harvest them for fuel. For example, if, if the tree was going to stay there um, so that we could 
this is easier to tell as a public land story, but if the tree was going to stay there for 100 years, if you harvested it at 20 and burned it, right, then you've foregone a lot of sequestration. But wait, we're talking about whole trees now. Shouldn't we be talking about refuse, treetops and branches and disease trees, all that stuff that gets left behind from logging? That's just going to get burned or decompose and release its CO2 anyway, right? Well, that would be different. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that in practice, it's just not what's being used. I spoke with Heather Hilliker at the Southern Environmental Law Center. She's done research on wood pellet sourcing in the Southeast. The Southern Environmental Law Center has been involved in the woody biomass issue for, I would say, at least 10 years or so. Um, And it started with some of the initial claims of the industry being carbon neutral, and in in particular, when Inviva, which is the world's largest manufacturer of wood pellets, they started building some of their first facilities in North Carolina, um, which is really the heart of um, SELC's region. And when these wood pellet mills first got constructed, of course, the claim of Inviva in the industry was that they were going to use wastes and residues and that this was a green and clean and carbon neutral source of energy. But we quickly started getting um, reports from partners about clear cutting of some of the most biodiverse and ecologically sensitive um, hardwood forests in our region around these pellet mills. Connecting those clear cuts to wood pellet mills is tricky, though, in large part because tracing each pellet back to its roots is a pretty tough chore. The overwhelming majority of forests in the Southeast United States are privately owned. And the wood pellet industry, and in Viva in particular, they purchase their wood from thousands of individual landowners. And so to get down to a parcel by parcel, forest by forest tract um, analysis is near impossible. Um, we don't have information about every single forest property that has been harvested for Inviva or other wood pellet mills. Um, And so to be able to get down to that level of analysis is nearly impossible um, because we don't have, we're not privy to some of the um, information that Inviva has obviously about who they are contracting with to purchase these materials. Um, So what we are left with are kind of these anecdotal pieces of evidence. So the SELC had to get creative. In 2021, they commissioned a report from researchers at Clark University. The goal was to use satellite imagery from the past 10 years to figure out exactly what wood was coming from where. They focused on the sourcing areas around three pellet mills, two in North Carolina and one in Virginia. What we found was that hardwood forest harvesting actually increased in the area around these three mills after Inviva's mills started operating. SELC's geospatial team followed up that study by doing additional research using the U.S. Forest Service Timber Products Output Dataset, or TPO data. The results of of that study confirmed what we saw from the satellite images, which was the amount of materials being harvested for this category, bioenergy and fuel wood, increased dramatically after Inviva's pellet mills started operating, which makes sense because that's what the category of wood is for. But one of the key findings of looking at that research was actually the type of wood being used for Inviva's pellet mills or being used for this bioenergy and fuel wood category. And what they found was that the overwhelming majority, 84% of the hardwood material being used for bioenergy and fuel wood came from larger diameter whole trees that could otherwise be used for saw timber not the waste and residues that Inviva and the industry claims is being used. Wow, 84%? Yeah, 
And this problem doesn't seem to be restricted to southern forests. It goes to European forests as well. Here's Louise again with Politico. The EU is also the largest producers, producer of wood pellets in the world, followed by the United States and Canada. Sourcing uh, biomass in the EU is notably regulated through the Renewable Energy Directive, uh, which states that uh, biomass has to be uh, harvested following uh, sustainable forest management practices. That means in practice that foresters um, should maintain um, the forest biodiversity, productivity and regeneration capacity so that um, in simpler terms that you need to replant uh, the trees that you harvest so that um, your forest is regenerated over the long term and that you can in then you can keep using um, the the biomass that uh, it produces basically but of course we also have seen reports in the last years of um, illegal woodcuts happening uh, notably in uh, natural protected areas like in Romania for instance or in Poland in the past. Uh, in Romania, uh, media reports have shown that the illegally cut trees um, are allegedly used to produce wood pellets. As we mentioned earlier, the new RAD amendments are trying to fix some of this by putting restrictions on sourcing. But if you ask Bob, the sourcing of whole trees may be a feature, not a bug. It doesn't take much math to point out that you can't really build much of an energy sector off of picking up the scraps. These reports also cast some doubt on whether the historic stability in forest cover, with only the market regulating it, is really an adequate answer to forest sustainability questions now, in the face of increased demand for pellets. We also found that from 2011 to 2016, which is the time period um, after Viva's mills started operating, that hardwood forest harvestings actually exceeded growth, resulting in a net loss of hardwood forest cover in the area. And this was a key finding because one of the main claims of the industry is that growth exceeds harvest. But what they're looking at is a very big picture, very zoomed out focus of harvesting in the South or harvesting in the United States writ large. And what this did was really narrowed in the focus and said, okay, let's look at the actual sourcing area for specific pellet mills and what is the impact there? It turns out the local impacts of the wood pellet industry have raised concerns about way more than just carbon sinks, in large part because of where they tend to get cited community impacts and what is happening from the wood pellet um, industry to the communities that are living right next to these pellet mills. And unfortunately, what we see in the southeastern United States is that um, wood pellet mills are 50% more likely to be included, um, constructed in what is considered an environmental justice community. An environmental justice community generally refers to any low-income community or community of color. These communities have historically hosted a disproportionate share of high-polluting industries and waste sites in the U.S., and still do today. And wood pellet manufacturers, well, they tend to be that kind of neighbor. We see a lot of very harmful impacts that are coming from the wood pellet manufacturing. So wood pellet mills are industrial sources of pollution. They emit 
large levels of um, several different harmful pollutants, such as volatile organic compounds, which um, create smog and ground level ozone, hazardous air pollutants, some of which are carcinogenic or likely carcinogenic, and fine particulate matter, um, PM 2.5, that has some very severe respiratory impacts to communities. And not only that, you have the impacts from just the dust, the noise, and the traffic from these wood pellet mills on the nearby communities. Um, I've spoken with several communities that live next to wood pellet mills, and their top two complaints are often dust, um, the fine um, dust particles from the wood processing that float onto their houses and their cars and um, make it hard for them to breathe, and the noise, in one case, they said unbearable noise at all hours of the day and night that um, prevent them from being able to get a good night's rest. The SCLC joined with the Environmental Integrity Project to represent Clean Air North Carolina in a lawsuit against Enviva's Hamlet, North Carolina facility. In that particular um, permit appeal in North Carolina for the Inviva Hamlet facility, that actually resulted in a settlement agreement between Clean Air North Carolina, Inviva, and the State Department of Environmental Quality, whereby Inviva agreed to install additional pollution control technologies that would reduce its emissions of some of these harmful pollutants by at least 95%. As a result of that suit, all Enviva's new plants have to install the same technology. That's a pretty big win. But there still seems to be a tension between these negative impacts and the fact that the wood pellet industry brings jobs and tax revenue to rural communities, right? True. But then again, all the sourcing happens within a 75-mile radius of the mills, which means these communities are losing their trees at a high rate, too. But it seems like those local landowners would benefit then, and they'd have a pretty strong incentive to keep their land and trees instead of converting it to some other use. That's the argument industry always points to. Heather is not convinced. I often think of this actually as like the Walmart argument, that without the pellet demand, these floors would be converted to a Walmart or some other store or parking lot or apartment buildings. Um, and I don't think that that has borne out, at least in the evidence that I have seen, in particular in the area in eastern North Carolina, where a lot of Enviva's wood pellet harvesting has historically been, um, that's not the reality. These forests aren't being threatened with those types of conversions. And if wood pellets aren't increasing forest cover, or at the very least maintaining it, that spells really bad news for climate change. I always want to say we have 10 years to drastically reduce our emissions. And then I remember that the report that said 10 years was like four or five years ago. Um, so we are in a very short time period right now to drastically reduce our emissions while also increasing significantly our natural carbon sinks, including our forests. And the entire wood pellet supply chain is bad for the climate. So you've got the forest harvesting, which is having these... Um, carbon emissions from forest harvesting in and of itself, you've got the foregone sequestration, which means the emissions, the carbon emissions that would have been sequestered in those forests, have they been left standing and left to continue sequestering um, emissions? Then you've got the actual wood pellet manufacturing process and transport both to the pellet mill and to the ultimate utility that's going to burn them. You've got those processing and transport emissions in terms of carbon emissions and GHG emissions. And then you actually have the wood pellet combustion itself. And burning wood pellets for energy actually increases carbon pollution um, in the short term. 
over coal. And so when you're looking at this through the lens of climate change and carbon reductions, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, at this point, it sounds like wood pellets are, uh, like many other issues, complicated, multifaceted, lots of different things going on here. On the one hand, it's just a fact that we need to get off of fossil fuels. And um, wood pellets provide us with a you know, readily available, um, you know, a, a arguably carbon neutral or even potentially in the future carbon negative source of energy, it's relatively cheap um, and it's plentiful, it's available. And especially in places like Europe that are facing an extreme immediate energy crisis, it's not a big surprise that they're reaching for sources of energy like wood pellets. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there's local environmental consequences. You know, there's, there's a real worry about ancient forests and old growth forests that are going to be subject to this use mechanisms to make sure that, you know, only scrap wood or low quality forests, whatever that means, are being used, um, are going to, they're going to have holes in them. And of course, there's just questions about whether how ultimately how carbon neutral or how environmentally sound this practice really is. So I guess actually, you two, uh, you know, are in as good a position as anybody to to come down with a verdict on this. So, what do you think? Like when you when you do the cost benefit analysis and and consider whether you know all the pros and cons of this practice, do is this actually a, a good thing or is it something that we should be really moving away from altogether? So I I'm not quite sure where I land on the issue, but I do still think that wood pellets have a lot of promise. Despite wood pellets' deficiencies, their benefits relative to coal and their ability to bring jobs into regions suggest that maybe wood pellets are a necessary evil or a sort of bridge to better technology in the future. And so, Elizabeth, what do you what do you think? Well, I'm still less convinced. Um, I think it's it sounds great in theory. But in practice, it seems like we've got kind of three big factors working against it, the biggest of which is just the timing. I mean, it, it, you know, it's hyperbolic to ever say that there's like a, a worse time, probably. That this is the worst time to spike emissions. But it seems like a really bad time to spike emissions, uh, which is what it seems to suggest or what evidence seems to suggest does happen when you swap wood for coal. Um, kind of like you mentioned, the sourcing evidence just shows that it's it's not just refuse right now and there's not a lot of protection out there to make it refuse in the future so it seems like the kind of sourcing that we see now is likely to continue um and maybe those two things we could get around just with the idea that we got to get off of coal and we need a new energy source but it's drawing from the same bucket of subsidies that wind and solar and geothermal, maybe nuclear, it's, it's the same pot of renewable energy uh, spending. And that's just going to get more expensive if you add BECs. So I'm not sure if any of those factors are ultimately dispositive for me, but combined, I, I think it seems like bad news. Hmm. So now that you guys have kind of done this um, 
this really, you know, quite extensive amount of research on this issue. I just think a little bit, maybe we can zoom out a little uh, more broadly about kind of environmental issues in general or addressing climate change. I mean, are there, are there any lessons here um, for, for other technologies or just for, for policy design, how we think about addressing environmental issues? I always try to, you know, you know is there a broader lesson? Is this, it, it, or is this just a story of one technology and the, the lesson is you have to look at the details every single time? Um, I mean, that's also worthwhile, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on, um, yeah, like what, what, you, what, what you learned more generally about, uh, about how we approach environmental issues or, and specifically maybe the issue of transitioning away from fossil fuels to cleaner sources of, uh, of energy. Well, I know for me, it made me a little bit more skeptical of carrots versus sticks, um, just in the way that this is an industry that is boomed largely based on government subsidization. And, you know, that's great if it turns out to be a, a really renewable, good source of fuel. But by kind of juicing that market, it seems like that's part of what's led to finding old growth being cut down in Romania and losing more hardwoods here in Virginia. So it has made me just, I guess, think twice a little bit more about it being a great idea whenever uh, we, to use the old phrase, pick winners and losers. Um, so yeah, that's been an interesting takeaway. Yeah. How about you, Matt? Yeah. I, I think that this project underscored the fact that, especially with environmental issues, there are not going to be clear answers. And Professor Apt really spoke to the fact that um, there really is no right or wrong answers. There are just winners and losers and, and trade-offs. Um, and even if we do decide that wood pellets are worth it and, and better than coal, um, you know, whether that actually increases the carbon stock still depends on a lot of factors, um, such as whether you're pulling from pulling hardwood out or, or pulling pine from plantations. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's important when we approach these issues to, to be mindful of that and, and to be willing to balance all those factors instead of um, just jumping to one side of the issue. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much for um, for joining me today and for all the work that you put into this episode. I think it's a, it's a really special version of the podcast, and I appreciate all the work that went into it. Yeah, thanks so much, Professor Livermore. Thank you.